Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. I am so thrilled, honored, and delighted to have one of my heroes. I am truly a groupie, Dr. Melanie Joy. And she fills me with joy every time I see her at a conference. Uh, I've seen her at the International Animal Rights Conference in Luxembourg, the National Animal Rights Conference here in the United States. And she always just drops these truth bombs that completely change my way of thinking. Uh, My gosh. I guess I should start by reading your incredible um, just micro bio. We could be here all day talking about your accomplishments, but you're a psychologist, international speaker, longtime vegan, social justice advocate, the award-winning author of six books, including Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism, and Melanie coined the term carnism. Uh, Beyond Beliefs, A Guide to Improving Relationships and Communications for Vegans, Vegetarians, and Meat Eaters, Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation and Getting Relationships Right. And you've taught at the University of Massachusetts. You've gotten the Ahimsa Award previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela for your work on global nonviolence. And what we're talking about here today, and you can get all this and more information at MelanieJoy.org. We're talking about your brand new book, The Vegan Matrix. I love the title. Tell us all about it. What inspired you to write it? What's it, what's it about? Well, thank you, Jane. Oh, it's always like such, it's always so invigorating to talk to you. You're such a mover and shaker and so inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Um, So yeah, The Vegan Matrix is my most recent book and it's actually coming out this week. Um, And I actually wrote the book or I decided to write the book at the height of AR Me Too because I was uh, very concerned with what I um, saw unfolding. I had been grateful that this vitally important subject of privilege, um, male privilege in particular, but also other forms of privilege like white privilege, able-bodied privilege, was finally starting to get the attention it deserved. Um, Vegans who had previously been unaware of and often resistant to, um, even resistant to learning about privileges other than human privilege, were finally starting to take the issue seriously. Um, But the conversation about privilege quickly started to become Um, you know, really problematic. And I started witnessing men who had previously opened up to the subject shutting down again. Now, to be fair, some of these men were in fact reacting badly and simply defending their privilege. But a number of them, um, you know, these some of them were men I knew personally, were genuinely trying to understand the issue and learn how to be allies. But the dialogue around the issue was becoming too difficult for people to continue to engage in. Now, I should back up a little bit and say that before, long before AR2, I wanted to write about privilege and speak about privilege. Um, I felt it was just extremely important to use my platform to raise awareness or help raise awareness. There were plenty of people already doing this, of this vitally important issue and one that I was personally familiar with and also passionate about. Um, 
you know, for some context, you shared a little bit of this, Jane. Um, you know, most vegans know me only for my animal rights work. Um, and, uh, but, but I'd been active in social justice causes since I was a young woman in the 1980s. Um, in the early 90s, I was part of the Boston chapter of Feminists for Animal Rights. And when I was Whoa. involved um, earlier or, or in the 90s, also, I was involved in civil disobedience and protests against the U.S. invasion of Iraq and against corporate globalization. And my entire teaching career, which spanned over 20 years, was really it was focused on liberatory pedagogy, which is teaching for liberation and social transformation. And I worked almost exclusively in low income communities. And I taught courses on privilege and oppression and feminism and, and other related issues. And, you know, of course, as a woman, I was no stranger to sexism in the movement and beyond. I was actually even threatened once by a man who heard me talk about the correlation between patriarchy and carnism and threatened that he would, quote, stop my feminist rantings at any cost. But I just had felt that the timing wasn't right for me to write or speak about privilege in the movement in a way that would really do justice to the issue. I, I didn't want to just start writing without having the presence of mind, the focus and the ability to communicate in a way that I felt would really do justice to the issue. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there were and are many great resources already like the work of Christopher Sebastian, who I love, Silanaf Co, um, Encompass is doing some great work, and, and many, many more people in the movement were writing and have been writing and talking about privilege. Um, but during AR Me Too, I came to realize that even though there were a lot of valuable materials available, there still wasn't like a straightforward, actionable guide for vegans who just wanted to learn the basics of what privilege is, and also for people who wanted to explore how to talk about privilege, um, you know, which people are very defensive against talking about often, in a way that increases the chances that their message will be heard as they intend it to be. And these dual problems of unexamined privilege, privilege that people aren't aware of, and the, the challenges communicating around it, um, you know, had been and continue to be costing the movement a tremendous amount of time energy and money, money, and of course the infighting that has been ensuing is contributing to a movement that is oh. in some ways cannibalizing itself. Yes. So we have to stop the infighting. And I want to unpack privilege a little bit with you because it's a term that's being thrown around a lot uh, and it needs to be discussed and we need more inclusivity and we need more diversity. And every uh, animal welfare, animal rights, vegan organization needs to look at that. And I applaud you for um, bringing this up and saying we need to do this. And obviously, it's in the greater context of uh, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and other huge social justice movements. Um, but I think you raise a very interesting point that pe privilege is sort of something that the privileged person is often not aware of. So when you say you're, you've got privilege, they may react defensively and um, not, not be conscious of the fact that they're uh, getting, what is privilege? Let, let's yeah. maybe, maybe we start by saying, what is privilege? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Is it, is it a ride on easy street? Does it mean that uh, you're, 
your future is sort of paved in front of you with gold and that you have uh, automatic upward social mobility? Uh, and how does that relate to veganism? Because I've taken offense to the idea that this is some sort of elitist movement. Now, the truth is that you could take a sack of brown rice and a sack of black beans and you could survive for two months uh, and be healthier than eating the sad American diet. And yet people will always say in your face, oh, it's too expensive. So to me, that's a false narrative of some kind of false elitism that I believe the meat and dairy industry has tried to put onto our movement. Just like they've tried to uh, emasculate men who are uh, eating a vegan diet, even though uh, eating a vegan diet prevents erectile dysfunction. And the game changer showed that the manliest men on the planet are plant-based. And some of the top sports uh, figures in our world right now, the top athletes are vegan. So uh, I, I feel like we have to really figure out when we are tossing around all these terms, what are we really talking about? What does privilege mean and who has it and who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. So these are really important questions and they've been talked about and written about a lot. Um, what I have done with the, the vegan matrix is try to like really break it down to um, its bare bones and really talk about privilege through a lens that many vegans, because as you point out, Jane, rightly, it's privilege is invisible typically to those who have it. And it's really hard to understand it when you're operating with privilege and you're not staying on the other side of it. So what I do in the vegan matrix is I use a form of privilege that most, if not all vegans can relate to, which I call, which is carnistic privilege as an example. So why don't I start with that and talk about what carnistic privilege is, and then I'll lead into what is privilege more broadly. Um, So Let me start now with some examples of a carnistic privilege that probably a lot of listeners can relate to, right? So, or I'll just ask you, have you, Jane, ever experienced non-vegans who, when you meet them, they treat your facts as though they're opinions and they treat their own opinions as though they're facts. So for example, they insist that the lobster that's scrambling to get out of the pot that she or he is being boiled alive in is just acting on instinct. And you say, well, no, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm vegan. I know this. I've learned about this. Crustaceans have pain receptors. We know that. They say, oh, you're just biased. You're just a biased vegan. So they treat your opinion as though it's a, your facts as though they're opin- your opinion. And they treat their own opinion as though they're facts. Or maybe an easier example is you meet somebody who's non-vegan and they've never even heard of veganism or they know almost nothing about it, but they start telling you all the ways that veganism is wrong. And somehow they act like they know more about veganism than you do, even though you've been living as a vegan for many years and you've immersed yourself in this lifestyle, right? I would like to say, have I ever met a non-vegan who doesn't exhibit those characteristics? (laughs) Um, Yes, it's frustrating. It's frustrating when we know Uh, that we have a solution that could combat immediately climate change, human world hunger, deforestation, habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, health problems like heart disease, cancer, um, diabetes as well, um, the obesity crisis, all of these issues. And we're basically treated by a large segment of the population like idiots. 
you know? Well, and so, and so uh, I, I was watching this documentary where it took, I think, the, the church hundreds of years to apologize to Copernicus for getting it right about where the uh, alignment of the sun and the moon and the planet Earth are. So um, people who are wrong can be very um, dominant and vociferous about it and, in, and entitled and sure. And you're like, uh, I don't get a commission for you going vegan. I'm trying to save the planet. It's frustrating. But one of the things that you said to me many years ago, I think it was like 10 years ago, that totally changed my behavior pattern <laughs> was when you said, we have to stop apologizing for being right. And I'll never forget you said that to me. And I stopped apologizing. I used to be that person who'd go to the dinner party. Oh, it's okay. I'll figure something out. And I just totally dropped that once you said that. You gave me permission to uh, own the fact that we are right. Yeah, well, I'm glad that was helpful. And I, I think, yeah, I wonder, <laughs> did I say we have to stop apologizing for, for inconveniencing people or feeling like we're inconveniencing people? It's possible too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's interesting. And, and to your point, I mean, obviously, you know, the solution to the world's problems is, is complex and we need to come at it from many issues, veganism being one of them. But what you're explaining and describing is that you as a vegan who has a tremendous amount of information about veganism can communicate with somebody who's never heard of veganism before or knows very little about it. And they act like they know more than you do. And you said earlier as well that, you know, people just get so defensive, like, you know, and this is another hallmark of privilege, right? So, and again, with carnistic privilege, we can see this. When you're a vegan and you start talking to somebody about veganism, you know, really raising awareness of their carnism for people who are not familiar with this term, carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. When you start talking about carnism or their carnism, or sometimes you don't even have to talk about it. You, they just know you're a vegan and you can feel the firewall go up, you know, and you hear this, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. People often have, it's like almost an allergic reaction to just hearing the term vegan and they shut out any information you might share that would help them get outside the carnistic box, right? That they don't even realize they're in. So these are examples of, of carnistic privilege. And I'll give you one more example, and then we can talk about how this connects with privilege more broadly to your question. Um, carnistic privilege causes people, non-vegans, to perceive minor inconveniences as major burdens, right? So simple changes that would save lives feel like an injustice or like an unfair request, right? So somebody might say like, what do you mean you want me to start eating veggie burgers instead of hamburgers? Mm -hmm. You know, because if I try really, really hard, I notice a tiny difference between the texture of a veggie burger and the texture of a real burger. So don't ask me to give up my meat, right? So you, this is an example of carnistic privilege. Now, you know, what's happening, and a lot of vegans know this intuitively, if they, even if they haven't given words to it, is that the non-vegan is operating under the influence of a mentality that distorts their perceptions and causes them to feel defensive against anything that would help them see clearly. This is the mentality of carnism. And I've explained that having this mentality is like being hooked up to a matrix, a carnistic matrix mm. that non-vegans cannot see, but that influences them profoundly 
And this carnistic mentality exists in order to keep carnism alive. Essentially, it exists to make people defend the practice of eating animals. So carnism causes non-vegans to feel defensive whenever they believe that their so-called right to eat animals, this is their carnistic privilege, is challenged. And this is a catch-22 because the antidote to carnism is awareness, except that carnistic privilege exists specifically to block awareness. And so this is precisely the experience that people have when it comes to other forms of privilege, like male privilege or white privilege. Carnistic privilege is just one of many privileges we've inherited. But many vegans assume like, well, once I figured out my human privilege, you know, once I've like examined that, that's the final frontier. I mean, once I've included animals in my circle of moral concern, then I've got it all figured out. But, but the, Privilege, understanding privilege doesn't act, doesn't work this way. It's not becoming aware of privilege doesn't necessarily happen in a linear fashion. Just because you've examined your human privilege, meaning that you've gotten to a point where you no longer feel that you have the right to exercise your power over non-human animals, it doesn't mean that you have examined other forms of privilege. So now I can get back to your original question of what is it then? Yes, and let me jump in because we got so many callers and so many people are commenting and people are saying they went vegan because of your books. And so let's Uh, go to Susan. Uh, Susan, your question or thought. Uh, hi, so glad you have on this uh, brilliant guest today. Thank you. Uh, I went vegan like almost 40 years ago, and you would think that my family would be used to it, or I would be used to my family. And I find I'm a humane educator, but I lose all sense of um, calmness when dealing with my immediate family. When they do things like uh, have a party for my 50th birthday and every single one of them eats dead animals. So I'm wondering if you can speak to the fact that so often our immediate family are our last bastions. And it's Excellent such a question. thorny issue. Yeah. God, yeah, I, it's a great question. Um, you know, privilege is non-relational in that when we have privilege, and I'm going to explain exactly what it is shortly, um, it causes us to interact with other people in ways that damage relationships, right? And so, you know, cr- privilege, unexamined privilege damages relationships. So when you, when a, uh, when, when a man, for example, hasn't examined his male privilege, that inevitably will damage his relationships with women. It will cause him to interact and and people of other genders and possibly other men. Um, It will cause him to interact with those others in a way that creates, that makes them want to withdraw from him because he's not tuned into and empathetic toward their experience. And so that's what I think you're, Susan, I think is your name, you're you're experiencing. Um, And it's, it's very important, I think, for, for, first of all, privilege is typically only visible when you're standing on the other side of it, ah. you know, not when you have it. Probably your friends and family have no idea that the way that they are behaving is causing you to feel so disconnected from them and so withdrawn, so unseen, so unwitnessed, so misunderstood 
That's my guess. I don't know. Maybe you have tried to talk to them about this and they haven't heard you. Um, what I can say, and this is a big question, and it goes a bit beyond like what we're talking about here. When you're in your, your immediate family system interacting with people, there are existing f- power dynamics that make it especially mm. difficult to talk about these issues. My book, Beyond Beliefs, is actually written for people in exactly your situation and more. It's about how to communicate about and relate um, with others when you are vegan and they are not. Um, And I have scripts you can just photocopy and give to the people in your life if you want. Like, here's what I wish you understood about me as a vegan. So your experience is extremely common and challenging. And the good news is that with an understanding of basic relational tools, which I talk about in uh, Beyond on beliefs. Um, and my other book on relationships, getting relationships right, you could choose either one of those. With an understanding, you can address these issues um, uh, in a way that's maybe a lot less complicated than it might seem right now. Uh, I think that's great. And I, I just to put it in like people terms, I, I think what you're saying is that veganism becomes a political football in, in a family power struggle, which every family is in power struggles. Uh, People are assigned certain roles, there's resentments, there's uh, power, power plays, and totally. they use veganism as a way to get you, you know? Well, it can be. It yeah. can be. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons that it can come up. I mean, one example is that often the person who becomes vegan is the person who played the role of the black sheep in their family in the first place. They were always the one who was like a little bit different, a little bit eccentric, a little bit more sensitive, <laughs> a little bit more weird. And it's like, oh, my God, now this. Of course, you're vegan. Right. So oh, interesting. You are a genius. Okay, we're going to take a short break here on Voice America Radio, but we're staying live on Facebook, and we're going to be back in a couple of seconds. Wow. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Are you ready for provocative discussions with some of today's most powerful movers and shakers? Tune in to The Art of Significance, featuring Dan Clark, the modern-day Napoleon Hill, who interviews the wealthiest, most successful celebrities and business leaders on the planet who are using their influence to change the world. From authors to entertainers, sports figures, educators to military leaders, Dan covers multiple topics. Tune in every Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influence. Channel. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You 
are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, we're here with the one and only Dr. Melanie Joy, best-selling, award-winning author, social psychologist, and her new book, The Vegan Matrix, explores privilege. We're going to unpack privilege. And the carnistic privilege, this is a new phrase, and it reminds me when I first heard carnism, I was like, wow, we've got a, we've got a word now. But now we have a phrase, and that is, of carnistic privilege, which means that people who, as similar, you said to white privilege and uh, male privilege, and uh, people who eat animals feel like they are entitled to do so. And that's, that's really the bottom line is legally they are entitled to do so. And um, I just had this argument. I was doing a radio show and, and the guy starts screaming at me that you're not a king and you're not a queen and we have freedom. And I was like, yeah, I'm not a king and I'm not a queen. I'm making a suggestion. Um, why does carnistic privilege, how do we deal with carnistic privilege so we can maybe switch those people or make them understand that they're basically killing themselves. Like their privilege is sending them over a cliff like a lemming. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad that you I'm glad that you raised this these this set of questions. So carnistic privilege is 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 not the same, of course, as white privilege or male privilege or able-bodied privilege. It is, I, I don't want to compare and say these are the same because the impact is quite it's important for us not to um, uh, compare the experience of the victims of privilege. And the victims of privilege are those who have been oppressed. And I'm actually going to now talk about what specifically privilege is for listeners who are still wondering what, how I'm using, how we have been using this term. Um, I use carnistic privilege, which is the sense of entitlement that non-vegans feel to continue eating animals. I use that in my book simply as a reference point for vegans who are not aware of other forms of privilege that they have. So vegans can recognize carnistic privilege fairly easily because they're on the other side of it. What's much more difficult to recognize are the privileges that you have because privilege, and I'm coming at this also from a psychological perspective, you can think of privilege as an entity that's taken up residence in your psyche. And in order for it to keep itself alive, it needs to keep you from seeing it for what it is and to make you feel defensive against anything that would shine a light on it. Now, specifically, a privilege is an advantage that's given to some that's denied to others. Um, You cannot have privilege without having someone or some others who are not privileged. Otherwise, something's not a privilege anymore if everybody has it. So privilege only exists in comparison to um, or when others are disadvantaged. Now, a privilege can be earned or it can be unearned. An example of an earned privilege was your privilege of holding a microphone and being, you know, a, a, a journalist, you know, working for a newsroom. That's an earned privilege. You had to work and do something to get that privilege. A driver's license is an earned privilege. 
the privileges that are problematic, really problematic, are privileges that are unearned. They're privileges that we did nothing to deserve. We simply had been born into a particular demographic, a particular social group. So an example of this would be, you know, male privilege or cisgender privilege or able-bodied privilege or uh, white privilege. These are privileges that give us a head start, that make our lives easier, that give us tremendous advantages that are denied to others. The flip side of privilege is oppression. Um, so when you are privileged, this means that you belong to you know, what's called the majority group or the dominant group. And the majority group does not mean the group with the majority of people. It means the group that holds the majority of social power. There have been a number of studies demonstrating that when you belong to the more privileged groups you belong to, the more social power you have. So the more likely, for example, you are to have your opinion taken seriously, the more likely you are to be listened to when you're talking. You can interrupt others and get away with it. You're more likely to have adequate nutrition and medical treatment and networks that help you get ahead in life and all sorts of other things that are denied other advantages that are denied to others. Uh, yes, that is, I mean, that is the essence, and I wish we could explain it in this clinical way where it's not just so emotionally charged, where it's uh, mixed in with all of these issues like um, ethnicity, race, nationalism. Like, if we could do a game theory analysis, it might make people have a light bulb moment. Instead of being defensive, go, oh, because I just learned something from you. Um, yes, we've got one. We've got another call. We've got a lot of people commenting. Paige, your question or thought? But thank you Paige. so much. This is such a fascinating conversation. And my question actually is in regards to, I know a lot of people who are actually doing flexitarian diets, reductionitarian diets, and I do feel that in some way I do give a nod to that. <laughs> I know definitely underneath it, I'm like, go all the way. But here's what I'm hearing now is the conversation for these small farms, the regenerative agricultural, um, you know, working with the animals and then uh, that one bad day conversation um, of like you're talking about in the privileged world, you know, the sort of the middle class, upper class that could afford that kind of more expensive product or meat or animal. I'm having a hard time with that. I'm just wondering if you can shed some light on um, and give some advice to how to, you know, kind of communicate with, with people who really are feeling vindicated that, that is, that's definitely the way of the future. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue, and you can come at it from a lot of different angles. I mean, I think on one hand, it's, uh, uh, it's very important for it, just keeping the conversation in the context of privilege and oppression within the vegan movement. It's very important for those of us who are working to transform carnism, who are working toward a vegan world, to be open to dialoguing with people from different communities, um, indigenous communities, communities of color, communities of people who don't have the socioeconomic means to make all the same choices that um, people who um, you know are more financially advantage to have and to really listen to them and 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 hear their perspective and what their needs are um, so that's 
one piece, and I'm not speaking to the issue about, you know, is it appropriate to eat animals or not eat animals? I, don't, I wouldn't even say appropriate is the right word, but I think the question, if I understand correctly, a question that you're asking is how do we grapple with this with diversity, how do we have an inclusive mindset when we may feel strongly about the need not to cause harm to animals? Right. There we are. Feel, I think yes, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. We have two other callers, but if we feel the moral, like if the killing is immoral, it's unnecessary. So the definition of homicide is an unnecessary taking of another life, not in self-defense, and that's the definition of eating animals then we feel a certain moral righteousness is, you know, is that a privilege too? And, and that's an interesting point. Um, let's get to a couple of callers and then we're going to continue on. So your next caller is Charlie. Charlie, your question or thought? Hi, yeah, no, I'm just, in hearing the distinction between earned and unearned privileges, I'm just curious because to me, carnism seems more or less like a choice. You have the ability to eat animals or not to eat animals. And I guess, not wanting to compare other privileges, but how do those kind of differentiate each other when carnism does seem more like a consumeristic decision? Excellent question. It's an excellent question. Um, well, it's, um, I think there's a, there's a, uh, we need to think about this beyond the context of the individual and think about this in terms of social systems. So, so let me back up and explain a little bit about what I mean. Privilege and oppression exist within a broader social system, a, so, a system of oppression, okay? So for example, racism is a system of oppression. Sexism or patriarchy more accurately is a system of oppression. Classism is a system of oppression. Speciesism is a system of oppression. Carnism is a system of oppression. Within these systems, we play different roles. And um, when you are privileged, when you are in the role of somebody who is privileged within the system, that means that you are a person who holds social power. You hold power over those who are, are not privileged. So it's easier to see this with, for example, male privilege. Um, it's less easy to see it, I think, with carnistic privilege, and that may be because carnistic privilege, carnism, I'm trying to get to be as clear as possible and not to get too like meta and abstract, Carnism is a sub-ideology of speciesism, just like anti-Semitism, for example, is a sub-ideology of racism. These mm -hmm. ideologies or systems, they're all structured in the same way. They all create the same kind of mentality. The only, what, what changes is the content, who is oppressing whom. So when we're talking about carnistic privilege, we're really talking about this as a form of, of human privilege and Whenever a person is a member of a dominant social group, that's the majority, the group that holds social power. And in this case, it's non-vegans. You have like 99% of the population and the power holding population as well are non-vegans. What this means is that the assumptions, the attitudes, the beliefs of the dominant group are automatically given more power and more weight than those of the non-dominant group or the minority group. And now in this case, we're talking about vegans as ideological minorities, members of a minority group that are not, and I wanna make this really clear, vegans do not experience the kind of oppression 
um, that people of color, that women, that people who are well, members if they are women of, of color and, and if they are people of color and women, they can experience all of it. Absolutely, absolutely. But but just and being I vegan in and of a, itself as a woman of color who's vegan. Yeah, absolutely. But just being vegan in and of itself does not make you oppressed in the same way that being a person of color in and of itself would. Right, right. And, you know, for everything that I've experienced, I call myself an earthling uh, because one of the things that is uh, adding complexity to this entire dialogue is that very we're trying to take the entire human race and stick it into four boxes, Okay, I'm half Irish. I'm half Puerto. I'm half Puerto Rican, but I don't even say that. I'm like half and half. I'm not. Where's the dividing line? I'm Irish. I'm Puerto Rican. On my Puerto Rican side, I'm also German and Spanish and indigenous. So I'm a lovely mix of a beautiful uh, panoply of cultures, and um, that makes me an Earthling. But a lot of times I'll get thrown into one box, and then I'll get thrown into another box, depending on who's looking at me and who's talking to me. And so, uh, you know, I've been accused of white privilege. I've been accused of um, um, uh, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with my life experience. And um, so um, I guess what I'm saying is that that's a little bit off topic, but I think it it comes back to um, not being aware of how we're being perceived by others. That's the key. Like what we're trying to do today is unlock the secret of how to let people experience veganism. And so, A, they have to be aware of that they have this privilege. But the tragic irony is that this privilege is killing them. It's not really killing me. I'm a vegan. I mean, I see people around me eating dead animals all summer long. And then I see the paramedics come up and pick them up and wheel them out when they've had a stroke and a heart attack. And I, yeah. I feel compassion for them. But um, the truth is that that privilege is self-destructive. That's what I feel we need to let people know. And also, as you said, what any other privilege is self-destructive because you are reducing yourself to your privilege, which is not really a truly human experience, right? Uh, it's like people who are very wealthy who reduce their entire experience to their wealth. Uh, that's really cheating yourself. Uh, it's like people who may be um, old money, okay? And they have a famous name and they're wasps and they came over on the Mayflower and that's their entire identity. It's actually an example of low self-esteem. It's like when I see people who need to have status symbols all over their body and their car, to me, that's a contrarian indicator. That says they're suffering from low self-esteem. They need to prop themselves up with all these labels. So in a way, if we could convince people that having a privilege is actually a dichotomy, it's actually a, um, it's really a sign of low self-esteem in a lot of ways, right? Well, a privilege is, I mean, privilege can influence self-esteem. Lack of privilege can influence self-esteem for sure. Um, Privileges to be, you know, fair privileges give people advantages that make their lives easier. A lot of the reason that people don't willingly give up their privileges is because they don't want to give up the benefits that go along with those privileges. But to your Mm -hmm. point, and privileges, it's really important, and I can't stress this enough, these are systemic issues. They are these issues, the 
the, the privileges that people have and the oppressions that people experience and animals experience as well are embedded within systems, systems of oppression. And we are all socialized to relate to each other in a way that harms our relationships when we are not aware of, and, and causes harm even beyond that, when we are not aware of the privileges that we have. And so I think just to, maybe just to sum up, um, privilege causes us, unexamined privilege causes us to be defensive against anything that would help us become aware of the fact that it exists. And it enables us to carry out to have attitudes and behaviors, it causes us to behave in ways that cause harm to others and that damage our relationships. So when we look at the vegan movement and we see this is a diverse movement, it doesn't look like a diverse movement because the people in positions of power do not reflect the diversity of the movement. Um, it could be a more diverse movement if we had an attitude that was more inclusive and inviting to people who were not all white people, uh, male people, of course, Many there are more women than men in the movement, but more people in positions of power tend to be men. Um, if Although we the hold, leader of the movement, if you have to say one person is Ingrid Newkirk, she's a female. so, and she is a female. But if you look at if you quantify it, right? If you look at the movement, there are more men in positions of power relative to the amount of women in the movement. So I don't want to know what the statistic is right now, but a couple of years ago anyway, it was about 80% women in the movement, um, but it was not 80% women in positions of power. Hmm. So the point that I'm trying to make is that if we want to create a more unified movement where we are connecting with each other, we are hearing each other, we are relating to each other in a healthy way, um, we need to examine our privilege at those of us who have it, and we need to talk about privilege in a way that does not lead to or increase the infighting in the movement. And right now, those examples that I gave of carnistic privilege, you know, where we have, there's a new book called Meatsplaining, you know, where we as vegans are on the receiving end of meatsplaining, and it drives us crazy. Or, I mean, maybe you've experienced this, Jane, where you sit down with non-vegans to have a meal and they're teasing you or they're making moo sounds as they're eating their hamburger. Or they're saying, you know why God created pigs because bacon tastes so good. And they're, they're making these carnistic jokes that are so offensive to you and really don't realize how much they're hurting you. This is the experience of people who are on the other side of privilege. You know, I used carnistic privilege as an example, but this is how women feel with men who are telling sexist jokes. This is how people who are not heterosexual feel with, and this is fortunately changing a lot, um, with people who are making heterosexist jokes. So we need to be very mindful as vegans that human privilege is one form of privilege. And if we don't commit to opening our minds and looking at the ways that other forms of privilege influence the way that we think and treat each other as vegans and treat people in the world, we're going to cannibalize ourselves as a movement. We're just going to keep on fighting with each other. Wow. Okay. We've got so many callers. Uh, let's try to keep these questions short, people. Lisa, your question or thought? Hi. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. So my question has to do with um, I've had some, I've been vegan now for about 12 years and the attitudes that I get when I have a very reasonable, very rational conversation with someone who is not vegan. And then I present some of the arguments and, and I certainly have talked about some of the concepts from your books, especially, um, you know, why we love dogs, wear cows and eat pigs. Um, I hope I got that right. <laughs> and, um, 
Close enough. And, and then I hit a wall. I hit that proverbial wall where now anything rational breaks down. And no matter what I say, it, it, they, it just, the, the conversation stops. And okay. I just wanted to yeah. see how, what, how do you get beyond that? That's my question. Okay. What do Perfect. you do? do Thank you. you. Thank you. Go ahead. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I talk about this more in my book, Beyond Beliefs. Um, but, I, you know, first of all, people will not change until they're ready to change. They're just, it's just not going to happen. It's really important that when you're communicating with another individual, you know, whether it's around privilege or, or not, um, to remember that underneath your differences, in this case, you're talking about an ideological difference, vegan, non-vegan, Underneath the differences is a relationship between people, and that's where their fo- your focus needs to be. I cannot, what, what this means is that the goal of your communication, ideally, the goal of a healthy communication is not to convince somebody of your perspective as much as we might want to do that. When a communication is healthy or what I would call relational, then the goal is mutual understanding. And, um, you know, advocacy Close relationships, and this includes friendships, are really not the best forums for advocacy. People Mm -hmm. don't change until they're ready to change. And just because somebody is in your life, your family member, your friend, it doesn't mean that they're in a state of readiness to change. I always recommend that we ask people when we're advocating veganism, we don't say go vegan. We advocate that people become as vegan as possible. Um, nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. And simply using that phrasing drops the defensiveness tremendously. I mean, what's somebody going to say? No, I'm not going to be as vegan as possible, right? But when you say, please be as vegan as possible, or you re- make that as a request, it's a very respectful request. You're letting them be the expert on themselves, on what's possible for them. And as I said, nobody can be more vegan than what they feel is possible for them. So yes. this shifts the conversation significantly. Yeah, that is really brilliant. Uh, and I've made that mistake so many times. I'm not going to make it anymore. Thanks to Dr. <laughs> Melanie Joy. Uh, we've got Michael on hold. Your question or thought, Michael? Yeah, thank you, Jane and Dr. Joy. Uh, great show today. I could listen to you two speak you. all day. Um, as you both know, the vegan, vegan activist community almost um, unanimously support other social justice movements. And my question is, how do we get these other movements to support our movement, which is actually based on the same type of oppression that they are fighting for? Yeah, well, good question. Um, uh, I think a lot of people um, would not perceive the vegan activist community as almost unanimously supporting other movements, um, unfortunately. Uh, I think there there are certainly some vegans who are very supportive of other social justice movements. Um, There are also a number of vegans who who are not so much. So, and and not due to any necessarily, you know, desire not to be supportive, but simply because if you're not aware of your own privilege, if you're not aware of the way that social justice movements um, connect to your own movement and vice versa, it might be difficult for you to, to feel as supportive as you might otherwise. So I think when, when we support a movement, um, what that means is that we give to that movement without expectation of return. That, that is what support actually is. If, if, you, if you support a movement and ex- another movement and expect something in return, that's not really supporting. That's more like, uh, that's a more of a transactional uh, than a supportive way of relating to them. I do think... I have, um, I have to, to jump in and ask a question. 
Because as I was processing what you had to say, you said, we will cannibalize ourselves. We will have all infighting until we become aware of our privilege. Can you explain that a little bit? I'm not sure I get the exact connection between the infighting and the privilege that we as vegans experience. And I just don't, I'm not totally clear on that. So, yeah, sure. Um, Privilege, privilege causes us to treat the people who don't have it in ways that are not respectful, to like really break it. The way that a non-vegan treats a vegan in a way that's not respectful, non-vegans consistently disrespect vegans without realizing that they're doing that. Non-vegans consistently offend us. They consistently interact with us in a way that causes us to feel invisible. They consistently engage in behaviors that we recognize as harmful, but they don't. They consistently contribute to oppression that we're working to end that they don't even see. So when we have privilege as white people, as men, as cisgender people, and so on and so forth, we engage in similar types of behaviors it's just not towards non-human animals or farmed animals and our movement is diverse if you're a person i'll give you a let me give you a personal example that might help to eliminate this as a woman in this movement for a long time i am no stranger to sexism and i have seen it for the 30 years or so that i've been in the movement i have been on the receiving end of it in the movement and beyond and um and it's been very difficult for me um And I'm a white woman, so it hasn't even been as difficult for me as it could have been. And I'm a white woman with power on top of it. I had, I'll give you one specific example of many, many examples. I was on a panel one time on a large stage in another country, and I was the only woman on that panel talking about veganism. And I was hosted by two men who were vegans who really wanted to put me up on the stage and have me be the voice of veganism, you know, for their community. And... I was uh, consistently interrupted when I was talking. The men were not. The men kept on talking over me. Um, They kept on communicating to me, trying to correct what I was saying when I was more of an expert um, than they were on the topic that I was communicating on. And of course, I had experienced this so many times throughout my life. It wasn't surprising to me. Like, I know what it felt. I knew this experience was not that unusual, but it was very uncomfortable because I was on a stage and I was really trying to do a good job representing veganism and getting my points across. After the um, conference was over, the panel presentation was over, I was having dinner with these two men and um, they said, how do you think it went? And I said, well, it was a classic you know, example of a gender dynamic. I mean, classic gendered communication. You know, It's not that surprising, but it was challenging. And they said, there was no gender dynamic. Their first response was there was no gender dynamic in that conversation. And I explained how, you know, I was interrupted consistently, how um, studies of gendered communication have demonstrated again and again and again that men are more likely to speak over women. I explained this. They insisted that I was wrong and I didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, how do you know this? Do you, have you taken a course in gender? Have you taken a course in feminism? No. Just it's clear to us it's not gender. Somehow these men were experts on gendered communication, talking to a psychologist who taught over a decade of courses on feminist psychology and 
had lived in the body of a woman for almost 50 years at that point. So they were both vegans, passionate vegans who had spent, you know, a lot of time and effort to get me to this position where I could be a voice of veganism, who really respected me as a vegan. And yet had, they had no idea how profoundly uncomfortable I was in this conversation with them and how offended and frustrated I felt that they were essentially, I'll say, mansplaining me. Um, it was very uncomfortable for me. So privilege is not the, it's not the only problem in our movement. I mean, you know this, Jane, we have a problem with toxic communication in our movement. There's a lot of frustration and yes, we're and, cannibalizing and, ourselves for different reasons. And at the risk of interrupting you, which I do not want to do, but I have a, a comment here from an Anna Rura. I have been vegan for one year. And when I talk to people about the issue, they tell me I have to respect others, that they have the right to eat meat. I feel angry towards people who know and choose to ignore. How can I manage that anger? Very difficult sometimes because you're talking about toxic communication. It's a perfect uh, example. We all feel angry. Uh, so I, I know we have to wrap up in a minute and I'd like to speak to that because it's a great question and such an important issue. So uh, People, understandably, when people try to raise awareness of privilege, just like when we try to raise awareness of carnism among non-vegans, right? We get, they get met with this defensiveness and it's incredibly frustrating, right? It makes sense that we're angry. It makes sense that we're angry about the atrocities that are happening in the world. You know, your anger, anger is the emotional response to injustice, your anger is a sign that your moral compass is working. It's really important to feel angry when there's injustice in the world in your life that you become aware of. And how we relate to our anger really matters very much. When we relate to our anger in a way that's healthy, we recognize our anger for what it is, which is an emotion that's giving us important information, that there is something that we perceive as an injustice. Maybe it's an injustice, maybe it's not. Sometimes it's not and we're just pissed at our partner thinking that they're doing something unjust. When we relate to our anger in a way that is not healthy, this is the problem we get into. When we relate to our anger in a way that's not healthy, number one, we become blended with it, meaning we don't recognize it as just an emotion I'm feeling. We become part of it merged with it, we and the anger are one. And it has the charge of contempt. As mm -hmm. soon as you feel contempt, that is a red flag that you are relating to your anger in a way that's not healthy. Contempt is a sign that you have put yourself in a position of moral superiority and that you are perceiving someone or more than one person, someone else as morally inferior, as being somehow less than less worthy of being treated with respect okay, or can I having their dignity honored. We have two, two minutes. How do you, I will cop to that. When I see people who say they're animal lovers and they're eating animals and it, to me, obviously they're killing an animal and obviously it's unnecessary. It's bad for the planet, it's bad for their health. We all know how horrible it is for everything. How can I not feel contemptuous of that person? So that's a great question. So it's, it's contempt says for us, when we feel contempt, it says more about us than it does about the other person. It's just so important to recognize that every human being is nothing more nor less than two things, the hard wiring and biology that we were born with and every single experience we've ever had in our lives. 
That's who we are. If we expect somebody to be different from who and how they are, it's like expecting a tree that's been rained on not to be wet. This doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable and work to change problematic behaviors, but we can do that while still honoring their dignity, saying, I understand. Like, Jane, think about how horrible you feel after a really crappy day when everything has gone wrong. You've been on economy in an airplane. You just want to kill people. How hard it is for you to feel compassion in those moments, how hard it is and how painful it is when you're in a place where you're not connected to your compassion. To feel compassion is such a privilege. The ultimate privilege. To feel compassion is the ultimate privilege. That's why the saints love the people who do terrible things, you know, turn the other cheek. Well, it is a privilege. If you have a really difficult life, it's really hard to be in a place of compassion. Well, we are out of time, but I wish I could just kidnap you and talk to you for another five hours. I feel like I had a therapy session. I know a lot of people are saying this is such a great conversation. Um, We do have to wrap up on Voice America. Thank you, Voice America. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.